at its heart, design thinking is about solving a problem with the consumer in mind or your particular target audience. And so it's how do you put yourself into that insight of the consumer? One of the ways we do it is by, by reframing the question. Right. Walt was a genius of design thinking. When he opened the doors to Disneyland on July 17, 1955 at 9.01 a.m., Walt simply uh, said, we will not have any customers in our park, we will only have guests. Now think about how you feel when you're treated as a customer, but you know how you feel when you're treated as a guest. Meet Duncan Wardle. As head of innovation and creativity at Disney, Duncan and his team helped Imagineering, Lucasfilm, Marvel, Pixar, and Disney Parks to innovate creating magical new storylines and experiences. He now brings his extensive Disney expertise to audiences around the world using an approach called design thinking, helping people capture unlikely connections, leading to fresh thinking and disruptive ideas. Delivering a series of keynotes, workshops, and ideation forums, his unique innovation toolkit has helped companies embed a culture of innovation into everyone's DNA. He's a multiple TED speaker and contributed to Fast Company, Forbes, and the Harvard Business Review. Duncan is also a featured voice in the documentary, Designing Schools, The Future is a Place We Create. It's about how a public school in San Diego, California, used design thinking to prepare their learners with the knowledge, skills, and mindsets to thrive alongside emerging technologies in today's world. You can watch the film at designingschools.org, and of course, you'll find a link to it in the show notes. Everyone has an opinion on what will ultimately differentiate humans from machines. In today's episode, Duncan says the most employable skills in the next decade will be those that are the hardest to program into AI. These four skills, he says, are also ones we're all born with. How do you navigate change? It's a question we think about often and one that today's world expects us to be comfortable with. The challenge, however, is where do you begin and how do you develop the mindset and skills to be successful? You're listening to Designing Schools, and I'm your host, Dr. Saba Kidwai, educator, researcher, and storyteller. Join me each week for stories and strategies that bridge the gap between research and practice as together we explore how might we design schools. So I'm often asked about what I believe will be the most employable skill sets of the next decade. If you listen to the experts in artificial intelligence, they'll tell you anywhere between 20 and 30% of the current jobs that exist in the Western world today will not exist by 2030, 2032, which is only a decade away from now, because they will be replaced by artificial intelligence. So then you ask the experts, I've worked with two or three experts, and ask them what they believe will be the most employable skill sets of the next decade. And the answer they'll give you is that the ones that will be the hardest to program into AI. And then if you ask them what those skill sets that are, are they, they'll tell you the ones with which we were born. We were all born a child. You didn't play with the toy, you played with the box. The toy came in, it was your rocket ship, it was your fort, it was your castle. We're all born with amazing intuition. We have 120 billion neurons in our first brain, 100 million neurons in our second brain. The brain with which we make most of our decisions as consumers when we say we went with our gut. We used to ask why, why, and why again until we went into first grade and we were told to stop asking why because there's only one right answer shortly before we were told to cull it in between the lines. And we all have an amazing imagination. We still have amazing dreams today. And these will be the most, I believe, these will be the most employable skill sets of the next decade simply because they will be the hardest to program. The problem is by the time we're 18, we've stopped asking why and we've been told we're not creative. And it's all about reminding people that they are creative and giving them the tools to do the job. Creativity, curiosity, imagination, and intuition. 
Over the next decade, these are the skills that will set humans apart from machines. As Duncan speaks about the next decade, I've been thinking back a lot on the past decade. About a decade ago, I was launching my first one-to-one iPad program at our K-12, alongside many other schools who had similar initiatives happening as well. I've been thinking a lot about the controversy around the camera that existed at that time. How many schools wanted to block access to the camera, How many opted for Chromebooks because they didn't see the unparalleled value that the mobile device and camera created. From capturing photos and videos to recording audio reflections, the integration of the camera across many other applications really revolutionized the ways in which students could share their learning. Today, the mobile camera has become an integral part of our daily lives changing the way we interact with the world around us and creating both new learning opportunities and new streams of revenue. According to Adobe's The Future of Creativity report, more than 165 million individuals have joined the creator economy since 2020. What's important to note is that the rise of the creator economy is not just about becoming an influencer or a content creator. In fact, many Gen Z students are seeking new and future learning creative endeavors that can lead them on the path of becoming entrepreneurs. The students who a decade ago had this experience of using mobile, of creativity, have a significant advantage in access to opportunities that today's world offers. It reminds me of a quote that I reflect on often by author William Gibson. He says, the future is here. It just isn't evenly distributed. So if we're all born with these skills, then why do we struggle to apply them? Next, Duncan shares why and how we can remind people that we were all born creative. As we grow up, if you ask an adult, you know, are you creative? We're invariably told that we're not because we define it as the ability to paint or write music. I define creativity as the ability to have an idea and everybody can have that. And I ask people, are they encouraged to be playful? If you ask people, what are kids better at than adults? The number one answer you get is play. Then you ask an adult, are they encouraged to be playful at work? And the answer is no. (laughs) So I want to explain the importance of playfulness. If I were to ask you to close your eyes for just a minute, just think about where are you usually and what are you doing when you get your best ideas? Shower, walking, jogging, commuting, bathroom, cycling, listening to music, commuting, waking up, falling asleep. How many of you could put your hand up and say, at work? None of you said at work, not one of you. None of us have our best ideas at work. Why is that? Isn't that really annoying? Close your eyes for a minute and picture that last verbal argument you were in with somebody, bit of a screaming match, I'm really angry at this person, I'll never work with them again. And you turn to walk away from the argument and it just popped into your brain, totally spontaneously, just as you walked away, the killer one-liner. That one perfect, beautiful line. You wish you oh, yeah, the killer. Yeah, if I said it, I'd have them. But you didn't, did you? My wife can. It's quite self-destroying. But for most of us, it comes two or three minutes after you walked away from the argument. You step in the shower, big idea. Walk away from the argument, hit a one-liner. But how do I get there on demand when I'm, I'm paid to have big ideas at work? By being playful. Right, children. Why is that? Because when we're in the brain state where we hear ourselves say, I don't have time to think, often considered by most people to be the biggest characters in the you're in the brain state that science calls data. I call it busy data, where the, this is what science would call the reticular activating system. Nobody remembers it. So I call it a door. The door between your conscious and subconscious brain is slammed shut. When I hear myself say, I don't have time to think. When you hear yourself say, I don't have time to think, 87% of your brain is subconscious. Only 13% of your brain is conscious. When that door is closed, you're only working with 13% of the capacity of your brain. That is about 85% of your working life. 
right? But the moment you step in the shower, boom, that door opens just wide enough. I can still make an informed decision, but I still have a big idea. So how do I get you there on demand? I'm playful. I run fun exercises that usually last about 60 seconds. All I'm listening for is laughter. Why? Because the moment I hear laughter, I know that metaphorically, I've placed you back in the shower where you are when you have your best ideas. Now, for those of you who said falling asleep or waking up, that brain state is known as thoughtful theta. When the door is even wider open between your conscious and subconscious brain. It was practiced by Thomas Edison in the 20th century. If you know the expression, when the penny drops, that eureka moment when I get the big idea. Thomas Edison used to fall asleep at night with a penny between his knees, a tin tray on the floor. And as he would fall asleep, his muscles would relax, the penny would drop, would hit the tin tray, and it would wake him up and he would write down whatever he was thinking. And you might think, well, that's nuts, I'd never do that. Well, okay. Well, who had hundreds of more people adventures in the 20th century than anybody else? If you're one of those people who gets your best ideas as you're falling asleep or waking up, option A, ask your boss if you could bring a bed to the office. Probably not going to go down that well. Option B, just keep a notepad by the bed. And catch it as you think of it, because you promise yourself you won't forget it by six o'clock in the morning, but we all know you do. Far more importantly, the point is this. When you're working on a challenge with a group of people, brief it in at least a week in advance. Why is that so important? Because some of your colleagues will go, uh, they'll go jogging. You hope they have a shower. You know they're going to fall asleep. They're going to go to all those places where they go when they have their best ideas. But when you're trying to have best ideas at work, I run something called an energizer. It's a 60-second exercise specifically designed to make you laugh because all I'm doing is moving you from the brain state called beta into the brain state called alpha. That is why children are the most creative people you know, because they're playful every minute. It's that playfulness that Duncan talks about in children that Sir Ken Robinson used to say schools ruthlessly take away from children by educating them out of their creativity. One method to help revive creativity and other skills that Duncan shares is a method called design thinking. You'll notice Duncan talked about a 60-second exercise called an energizer. This is one of many different exercises and frameworks that are utilized during design thinking. Too often, people incorrectly assume that design thinking is just made up of six stages, empathy, define, ideate, prototype, test, and iterate. And while, yes, absolutely, those are the foundational pieces of the method, the process is much more complex. And this is where the role of a facilitator becomes essential, as they will scaffold the conversation for the group one exercise at a time. One of the things I particularly enjoy doing in my workshops is as I facilitate these exercises, I'm also teaching the participants how they could go back and implement them as well. In the documentary, you'll hear from educators and parents about the difference they see in their own skills and mindsets and the difference they see in their children's as well from practicing design thinking. As someone who applied this methodology at Disney for over 20 years, Duncan shares why he believes design thinking can unlock innovation across all organizations. At its heart, design thinking is about solving a problem with the consumer in mind or your particular target audience. And so it's how do you put yourself into that insight of the consumer? One of the ways we do it is by reframing the question. Walt was a genius of design thinking. When he opened the doors to Disneyland on July 17, 1955 at 9.01 a.m., Walt simply uh, said, we will not have any customers in our park, we will only have guests. Now think about how you feel when you're treated as a customer, but you know how you feel when you're treated as a guest. He said, not only that, we will not have any employees, we will only have cast members, cast for a role in the show. And with that simple re-expression of the relationship between the employee and the customer as the cast member and the guest and putting the guest at the forefront, not the customer. Walter created a level of hospitality that's rarely been replicated since. So how does this tool work? 
Well, so for example, if you or I were asked to go into business and open a car wash, and I would ask you to name the essential ingredients what you must put in the car wash, and I would ask you to write down a list, I guarantee you the first right word you would write down is water, followed by soap, brushes, dryer, vacuum, cars, and a cash register. But if I were to ask you to develop an auto spell, suddenly I were here, masseuse, aromatherapy, cucumber water, candles, champagne and robes, which one would you rather go to? <laughs> All I did was re-express the challenge through the eyes of the consumer. Now, in 2011, if we'd asked the question, how might we make more money? We'd have put the gate price up at Walt Disney World by 3% and we'd have made our quarterly results. If you know the answer, you're iterating. If it scares you a bit, you're innovating. So instead of saying, how might we make more money? We reversed it from the consumer's point of view and said, how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point? Everybody knew what it was. It was called standing in line. And so we said, well, where are the biggest lines? So we went out to identify them. Space Mountain, meeting Mickey Mouse, checking on or checking out of a hotel, going through the turnstiles to get in the park. And so we looked outside of our industry for an insight for innovation and found a very small company in Tokyo, Japan, using RFID technology to enable people not to stand in line. All we did was put an RFID chip inside a little plastic band. Welcome to the world of Disney's Magic Band. Of course, you can upgrade to the Star Wars edition, and you know it comes with matching merchandise. But that's not, <laughs> that's not the point. The point is, today, this is my room key at Walt Disney World. I touch the door and opens. I don't have to check in or check out of the 27 resorts there today. In fact, uh, this is my theme park ticket. I don't stand. In fact, the turnstiles at the four parks in Florida went away about five years ago. This has my reservations for my favourite three character meet and greets and my favourite three rides today. I can pay for merchandise with it. I have to touch it once, it goes to my hotel room. Touch it twice, it goes to my house. Now there are security features in places to stop children from touching everything in the park. I want my hot dog with pickles on the side. I'm going to Pinocchio's Village House for lunch today. I hit save on my smartphone. I walk into the restaurant and I want to walk in. I sit at the table, I want to sit at the food comes fresh to me. Had we started by asking a very product-centric question, how might we make more money, uh, we would have made 3%. But by reversing it from the consumer's point of view, which is at the heart of design thinking, the average guest at Walt Disney World today has two hours free time they didn't have four years ago. What has that resulted in? Record intent to return, record intent to recommend. What is it we do with our free time in Disney parks? We spend money. Copious amounts of it, apparently. One of the biggest revenue-generating ideas Disney has ever created. Not only that, but every second of every day, anybody wearing one of these is essentially crowdsourcing the future products and, uh, products and services of everything Disney creates by telling them every second of every day what they like and what they don't like. Duncan highlights a theme that Beth Holland and I have been writing about after we read Atomic Habits by James Clear last year. In the book, Atomic Habits, he shares that the key to achieving our goals is by asking who we want to be, not what do you want to achieve. He says when we shift toward a focus on our behavior instead of outcomes, we begin to not only see results, but we sustain and scale those results as well. Schools today stand at yet another crossroad faced with a critical decision that will shape their identity and their legacy and the futures of our learners. Do you want to be an organization that shies away from taking risks and is afraid to embrace change? Or do you want to be an organization that welcomes new possibilities with open arms, constantly pushing the boundaries of what's possible? The answer to this question doesn't just apply to the organization itself, but also to each individual within it. A decade from now, do you want to be known as the leader who resisted innovative technologies or the leader who empowered their team to envision and design new futures for learners? As we move further into the age of technology and innovation, advancing from the camera app to AI, it's crucial for educators and leaders alike to embrace new possibilities and strive for growth, ensuring that all of our students are not left behind in today's rapidly changing world. 
One of the easiest ways to do this is by implementing methods used in design thinking. It truly gives us the structure we need to have controlled innovation that allows us to take comfortable risks in a step-by-step -step way so that we can see the outcomes and iterate and test different things as we go. Creative thinking, Duncan shares, doesn't happen in isolation. Diversity at the table is essential to being able to unlock innovation. He shares how he uses a method called Naive Expert to help Disney launch yet another transformative idea. I'm often asked from my perspective on diversity. And uh, one of the things I use is a naive expert. Well, what on earth is a naive expert? And why should you invite one into every session you run? A naive expert is somebody who doesn't necessarily work in your particular discipline or industry. What does that give them permission to do? Well, they can't solve the challenge for you. That is an unrealistic objective. But they do have permission to ask the silly question that you're too embarrassed to ask in front of your colleagues, but probably needs to be asked. They have the permission to throw out the audacious idea and governed by your constraints and your rivers of thinking. Again, they won't solve the challenge for you, but they will say or do something to stop you thinking the way you always do and give you permission to think differently. Case in point, we were designing a new retail dining and entertainment complex for the Hong Kong Disney Resort a few years ago with the Disney Imagineers. But in the room that day, we had 12 white male American architects over 50. It's called Groupthink. So I invited in as uh, my naive expert, a young female Chinese chef. Why? She was the antithesis of everybody else in the room. She wasn't male, she was female. She wasn't over 50, she was under 30. She wasn't an architect, she was a chef. She wasn't American, she was Chinese. And I gave everybody the same task that I'm gonna give you now. You're gonna need a pen and a piece of paper and you're going to draw an object, but you only have seven seconds to do it. This is the same object that I asked the Disney Imagineers to draw that day. So uh, please, would you draw a house? Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Pens down. And there we go. So hands up. Whose house looks like mine? One door, absolutely. Two windows, completely bars over them, probably. What shape is the roof? It's a triangle. Why? Because all of our expertise and experience, our rivers of thinking, tells us that's what a house should look like. And sure enough, all of the Disney Imagineers drew the same house that Shocker, you did. Except one person in the room, the young female Chinese chef. Whilst everybody else drew one of those, she drew one of these. Dim sum architecture. Why wouldn't she? She's a young female Chinese chef. Never occurred to her to draw it the same way that everybody else did. On the way out the door, one of the Disney Imagineers slapped a post-it note over her drawing with simply said, some architecture, distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Seven years later, the strategic brand positioning that guided the entire design of the Shanghai Disney Resort, distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. The point is this, some people could call it design thinking. I think a lot of design thinking is in fact embedded in common sense. Um, what people don't realise is this, diversity is innovation. If somebody doesn't look like you, they don't think like you. And if they don't think like you, they can help you think differently. You were born a design thinker, says Duncan, just as you were born with creativity, curiosity, imagination, and intuition. This was another theme that the educators interviewed in the documentary shared. They said that educators are inherent design thinkers. What design thinking did was give them common language, frameworks, and structure to unleash the creativity, curiosity, and imagination in both their learners and in themselves as well. As we think about how we can bring these learning experiences to everyone, it's important to recognize yet another decade-old challenge whose cycle we need to break. In 2001, sociologist Paul Atwell highlighted the digital use divide. 
Here, students experience vastly different realities in terms of the learning opportunities that they experience with technology, creating two groups, he says, the information haves and the information have-nots. Over two decades ago, he defined what is perhaps the greatest equity challenge that we must confront today, preparing all students with future-ready skills like those defined by the World Economic Forum, solving unstructured problems, complex communication, creativity, emotional intelligence, and more. As educators, it's important that we not only equip students with the necessary technical and soft skills, but also help them develop more creative mindsets. You'll hear me say this over and over, but it's one of the reasons I love design thinking. It is both a method and a mindset. Encouraging students to take risks, learn from their failures, and embrace the entrepreneurial spirit can help them navigate the complexities of the modern-day workforce while making them incredible global citizens, carving out a successful career in the creator economy regardless of their socioeconomic or racial background. This means that every student needs to learn how to harness today's technologies, be they the camera app, chat GPT, or whatever comes next tomorrow. At the core of this challenge lies the need to shift the mindset around technology from being a supplemental tool to an integrated component for teaching future-ready skills. If you'd like to bring a design thinking workshop to your campus, you can find my contact information in the show notes. But for now, keep that pen and paper handy wherever you get your best ideas, and together, let's design schools that give everyone the knowledge, the skills, and the mindsets to thrive today, not only in their workplaces, but as citizens of the world as well. It's your turn to join the conversation by sharing what you enjoyed or what questions you have. In a world where time and attention are so valuable, thank you for choosing to listen and for being a part of our Designing Schools community. Leaving a review for the podcast helps others learn about the show, giving them the gift of knowledge and allowing this community to help create access and exposure to ideas and opportunities others may not even know exist. <laughs>